we were in the middle of the season. It was the Big Eight back then, not the Big Twelve. Uh, hitting some rocky times. Danny wasn't playing real well, and he pulled me aside. I'll never forget this out of the locker room one day, and he and he. I was the only senior on the team. I was the captain, the only senior. And he said, Tad, I want to apologize to you. I'm not playing very well right now. And I know Coach Brown's on our, he's on our butts and, 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 and coaching us pretty hard. He says, I'm going to do better for you. And that's a freshman, you know, talking to a senior. Uh, I'm a role player. He's, you know, the budding star of the program, and he's apologizing to me because he's not playing well. It just kind of gives you an idea the kind of person and the kind of teammate that Danny Manning uh, is and was. Look, if LeBron James is out there and everybody knows how good LeBron James is, you know, th- now it comes down to recruiting. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to evaluate LeBron James. He's a pretty good player, right? You're going to win yeah. that recruiting battle or lose that yeah. recruiting battle. So to me at Colorado or at Wichita State or at Jacksonville State or at Northern Colorado, those places especially, it's about evaluating the right player and the guy that you think is going to be good enough in two or three years that everybody else is missing on, that diamond in the rough kind of guy. To listen to your message, press one. This is the Give Me a Sense Podcast. Here's Mike Yale. End of message. Oh, it's been amazing to hear the feedback the last few weeks on the show. I know the, the crazy story about the Arizona wide receiver turned federal agent going undercover to infiltrate Hell's Angels. Jay Dobbins sharing his story was unbelievable. I know it struck a chord with a lot of the listeners out there. We also had head basketball coach of the Utah Utes, Larry Kuskoviak, shared a ton of NBA stories. So I know you guys enjoyed that and continue to rate, subscribe, and review the podcast. Continue to spread that word. But we're going to stick with the, the basketball theme on today's show. And I know certain parts of the country the air is getting maybe a little bit colder smelling the christmas uh the crispness of that fall air leaves changing a little bit and i, I think it's one of my favorite times of the year because the ba- balls are bouncing inside of gyms basketball season certainly uh in the thick of things right now as we anticipate the start of the year and tad boyle is the head coach of the colorado buffaloes and he's good enough to stop by with us coach it is awesome to have you on the show with me thanks mike it's always good to be with you too well, Coach, you know, I, I made reference to Coach Kuskoviak, who I know you guys are, are buds, and he kind of shared his story, how he got into coaching, and I think your path is is pretty unique because while Larry played his college ball at Montana and sort of joked that, you know, there aren't a ton of NBA guys that, that necessarily go and, and play for, from that school, uh, Kansas has sent, you know, a couple guys, right, to the league? I mean, th- that program has done fairly well, I think, o- over the course of its history. Bit. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so explain to me, when you're at Kansas, because you were actually a team captain, if I'm not mistaken, correct? I was, yes. 1985. How does, eight, all right, we don't have to date yourself. Not, that's fine. Not so, to what, date myself, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what's that like? Because I know you were there when Danny Manning was there, and I'm going to ask you about him as well. But how, how does one become a captain of one of the most iconic college basketball programs in the country? Well, uh, let me just say this: When it comes to recruiting, and, and we'll probably get into recruiting a little bit later, but you know, there's two kinds of players. Okay, there's players that are under recruited, and then there's players that are over recruited. And you know, you mentioned Larry and myself. Larry was obviously under recruited. He ends up going to Montana and going to the NBA. I was over recruited. Um, I probably, you know, uh, people think because I went to Kansas, you know, I was a, a great player. I wasn't. I was a very, very good high school player. 
I only shot it when I touched it, but I put up some good numbers, and I was fortunate enough to, you know, get recruited by Kansas. And I, when I got there, Mike, it became pretty apparent that it, I wasn't over my head, but uh, I didn't have some of the gifted athletic skills that are needed to, you know, make it to the NBA. And uh, so I had to really scratch and claw and kind of fight my way through every practice and every workout and every pickup game to uh, earn my respect. And, and that's how I got to be the captain when I was a senior is I think I had earned a lot of the players and the coaches respect because of my work ethic. And uh, I wasn't the best player. I wasn't an NBA level player. Uh, and uh and I was probably over-recruited, where a guy like Larry was under-recruited, goes to Montana, develops into a, a pretty darn good pro. So um, that's you know uh, that's still true in today's world. There's guys that are over-recruited and guys that are under-recruited. How, how does that work for you mentally? Because I, I got to think, even if you're over-recruited and you, you end up at Kansas, you're not a bad high school basketball player. You're probably a stud, right? I mean, that's just how it is. You don't end up at a school like Kansas if you're not one of the premier players on your own team. So if you are a high-end athlete in high school, you head to Kansas, and you just told me about your athletic ability and, and really having to outwork guys and, and gaining that respect. How, how difficult is the adjustment for you from high school to college ball? And not just on the floor. I mean, just mentally speaking. Yeah, mentally speaking, it's very difficult because, uh, again, everybody goes to college with dreams and with aspirations. And, and most players that go to a place like Kansas or really, you know, any any high-level uh, Division One basketball program, they go there with the dream and the expectation that they're going to be an NBA player. And for some of them, it happens. For the majority of them, it doesn't happen. And that reality, uh, whenever it sinks in, and sometimes it sinks in early in your career, sometimes it takes a couple of years, maybe by the time you're a senior you realize, you know what, I'm probably not an NBA player, that mental adjustment is difficult. And it's uh, your, your, your ego takes a little bit of a hit. But guess what? It's how you react to it. And that's that's the beauty of the life lessons that that athletics teaches you is it's not what you know it's what not what happens to you it's how you react to it and and that uh, is true for every player that does not get to the NBA because they went there with the hopes and the dreams and the expectations that they would get there and that's why you see a lot of uh, great coaches and I would put Larry you know in uh, he's in the exception he's not in the norm. Uh, most great coaches weren't great players, whether it's at the high school level, college level, or the NBA level. And uh, uh, they, but they've started to study the game. They appreciate the game and 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 understand it. So when you're you're back on campus, I made reference to to Danny Manning, and I think everyone knows, you know, sort of the the lore surrounding him and his play. He's a freshman, you're a senior. Do you do you realize that he's going to be Danny Manning basically at that point? <laughs> He was pretty special, and I remember Coach Brown, when he was recruiting Danny, uh, talking about him, how special of a player he was, and then he, he gets to, to, to campus, and you start playing, and you see six foot eleven, and he can shoot the ball, he can dribble the ball like a guard, he can pass the ball like a point guard. I mean, his skill set, and, and he was not the pro because of the knee injuries that, you know, again, he could have been. Uh, or would have been, but uh, yeah, Danny was a special, special player, and and I always joke that you know everybody says that Danny, I had a chance to play with Danny Manning, and I always say no, Danny Manning had the 
uh, the opportunity to play with me. And uh, and people laugh at that because they should laugh. He he was he was as good a player, you know, as there was in in today's game in today's world. Danny's a one and done guy, uh, without a doubt. And uh, but he was a four year uh, player at Kansas and won the national championship in in 1988. And uh, the the best compliment I can give Danny is what a great teammate he was. And, you know, one of the stories that kind of uh, is evidence to that was we were in the middle of the season. It was the Big 8 back then, not the Big 12, uh, hitting some rocky times. Danny wasn't playing real well, and he pulled me aside. I'll never forget this, out of the locker room one day. And he, and he I was the only senior on the team. I was the captain, the only senior. And he said, Tad, I want to apologize to you. I'm not playing very well right now. And I know Coach Brown's on our – he's on our butts and, and – and, and coaching us pretty hard, he says, I'm going to do better for you. And that's a freshman, you know, talking to a senior. Uh, I'm a role player. He's, you know, the budding star of the program, and he's apologizing to me because he's not playing well. It just kind of gives you an idea the kind of person and the kind of teammate that Danny Manning uh, is and was. You ever coach a guy like that? Not as good as him. Not as good as him. I've coached some very, very good players, very talented players, you know, three NBA guys here at Colorado. But Danny was special given his size, his skill set, his mentality. Um, he was – he was. Uh, Coach Brown was right. He was very, very special. You made reference to, to Larry Brown just there. What's – What's Coach Brown like as a as a head coach? Because I got to think your relationship has really dramatically changed over the years. It's it's just mind boggling the the type of career that he has had, not just at the college level but also at the pro level. But you you're one of the few guys really on the planet that's been able to have sort of that connection. Although I guess there, it's considering the longevity of his career, there's it's it seems probably like a big number of guys that he's coached over his career. But what's what was he like? Well, you know, it's it's different, and I think, you know, if you talk to Coach Brown today, you know, it's different. He's a different coach today than he was uh, when he was coaching me, you know, 30-some years ago. So, um, but one thing hasn't changed, and that is, is his greatness and his ability to communicate, his ability to make the game simple uh, for his players and to make his players really want to run through a wall for him. And that's what made Coach Brown so special. He he was good in so many ways. I can't, you know, pinpoint one specific thing that made, you know, him great. But number one, he cared about his players, and he cared about the game. And that's the thing I think I appreciate more about Coach Brown now today as I'm older and, uh, you know, uh, uh pretty good uh, stint into my career is he really cares about uh, the game of basketball and and he always talks about playing it the right way and uh, uh, but as a as a player I can tell you this he was not easy to play for Uh, when I and what I mean by that is you know he wasn't easy to please if you got a compliment from coach Brown it meant the world because it meant you did something right and uh, uh, uh I think he's a little bit more apt to compliment guys now, but at the time, it was it was a little tougher to get those. Uh, but it made you appreciate him when you got him. And uh, he was uh, his attention to detail was unlike anybody I've ever been around. You know, if you're one foot out of place, he would correct you, and that got a little frustrating as a player. But again, it it uh, when your career is over with and done, you you appreciate him so much more. Ted, I know when I started 
my broadcasting career, people – one one great piece of advice that I got was, hey, look at the broadcasters, listen, watch, take the pieces that you like and apply them to what you do. But you still need to find sort of your own voice. And I'm wondering, as you're talking about some of the things with Larry Brown and playing for him, and now you're a head coach that's had a ton of success at Colorado – what are some of the things that you maybe took from him and then things that you wanted to maybe avoid as you sort of morphed into your own style as a head coach? You know, it's a great question. I think, you know, I think a lot of times it's like parenting. Um, you know, you, you, you think, okay, uh, as a son or as a daughter, uh, I'm going to take all the good things from mom and dad uh, that were passed down. And I'm going to, I'm going to institute those when I'm a parent, uh, but I'm going to take all those things that, you know, uh, they didn't do uh, well or things that maybe drove me a little crazy as a son or daughter, and I'm not going to do those those things. Uh, you know, theoretically, that makes a lot of sense. In actuality, it doesn't usually happen. <laughs> you take the good with the bad. And, and uh, so the things that I brought from Coach Brown that were really, really good, uh, uh, I try to use, but guess what? I also hear myself saying some th- some of the same things he said, and I say, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and I'd like to take it back, but I don't. And uh, uh, so I, th- I think coaching is a lot like parenting when it comes to that. But I can tell you this, the things that I took from Larry Brown, and I would not be where I am today without him, the, the, the basis of our program uh, being based on defense and rebounding uh, and attention to detail, uh, Again, that that came with Coach Brown, and so some some of the sarcasm that I have sometimes might have come too, and uh, I'm not always proud of that. But uh, it's just you know you take the good with the bad. I think with anybody, Coach. I remember when I got hired here at Pac-12 Network, and and just sort of following a lot of our teams and and learning about some of the nuances of everyone's program, and and certainly a lot of the head coaches and trying to develop relationships with everyone. I, I found a story. Uh, I, it must have been probably when you were first hired, maybe someone um, in Boulder or in Denver, they wrote a story about you and sort of your career. And it always struck me as sort of this wide awakening that you might have had where you're in a car accident and maybe you don't even become a head coach without that. Can you just explain to people who don't know that story what actually happened? Yeah, and and it's you know it's been well documented, and again, uh, my wife gets tired of hearing it because she's heard it so many times. But um, it's you know I was I was on the way to work. I was an investment advisor in Boulder, Colorado at the time, and I was coaching high school basketball, uh, kind of on the side. I was coming to work one morning early. Beautiful Colorado, blue skies, sunny morning, seven in the morning, and I pulled out in an intersection and somebody ran a red light because the sun was in their eyes at seven o'clock in the morning and broadsided my car. I don't remember anything. Uh, I was out, knocked out, woke up in the hospital, uh, you know, another five feet in the intersection and we're, we're not talking right now. I'm not, I'm not around. Um, so it was that close of a call to, you know, uh, having your life taken away from you. And when you go through an experience like that, it is life changing. And even though I don't remember the accident, it's not about the accident. It was about, again, how I reacted to it, which was, hey, this thing can be taken away from you, you know, just by getting up and going to work in the morning. And uh, it made me think about what was important and what I really enjoyed, you know, out of my life. And and I had an opportunity about a year later to get into college coaching at the University of Oregon. Mark Turgeon, who's now at Maryland, was on staff there, and, and they had an opening. And uh 
you know, I, without that car accident kind of waking me up saying, you know what, uh, you don't want to be, I was 30, 30 years old at the time, 29, 30 years old. You know, I don't want to be 53, which is where I am today, wishing, boy, I, w- I wish I would have gone and, you know, tried to be a college basketball coach. And, and I always felt like I could always come back and be an investment advisor. But uh, that was my one time to get into college coaching. And, and what's crazy about the story is now it's come full circle and I'm back in Boulder, Colorado, where I started coaching at the University of Colorado and living in uh, in a great, great place. Were you good at, at doing the investments? Handling that? <laughs> well, when the market went up, I was pretty good. When the market went down, I wasn't I uh, wasn't as good as uh, I wanted to be. But you know, you know, there's a lot of parallels to it. You know, in the investment business and coaching and recruiting, a lot of parallels. Number one, you're judged every day on your performance. Uh, number two, it's a relationship business. You have to build trust. You have to build a, a bond, whether it's with your client who you're helping invest their money for them, or whether it's you know, a mom or a dad or a recruit who, you know, they're trusting the next four or five years uh, uh, of their life to come and, and be under your tutelage. So uh, a lot of similarities between investments and, and coaching. It just something you told uh, with regard to that story struck me a little bit because it's, it's obviously Oregon, Tennessee, Jacksonville State, Wichita State, Northern Colorado. Did I get everyone? Did I get all the yep, teams? you got them all. Okay. You got them all. So you're – that pat i mean you're i think people understand hey the coaching world you, you bounce around a little bit what struck me would you say you when you took that job at oregon you were 30 or did you say 33 yeah 29 30, 30 years old yep okay so you're 30 years old not for nothing like isn't that that typically late right to start to get into nope. coaching absolutely you know i mean most people you know they're done playing they get to be a GA or they start on somebody's staff and they kind of work their way up. And, you know, by the time they're 30, they're a, you know, a full-time assistant or I was just getting started at 30. And, you know, there's been some guys who are head coaches by the time they're 30. Uh, so everybody's on a different path. And uh, the one thing I will say about that path is I couldn't have done it uh, without a unbelievable wife. Uh, and I remember when we got married in Eugene, Oregon, and we had that, uh, you know, heart-to-heart talk that, you know, most people do before they get married. Uh, you know, I said, look, now, uh, coaching is not like the corporate world. You don't have a five-year plan. You don't, you can't really plan your your future. Uh, you don't know where the opportunities are going to come. You don't know if you're going to get fired or uh, uh, you're going to get hired somewhere else. And she says, oh, I'm with you. Don't worry about it. I love you. And, you know, and two years later, we're in Jacksonville, Alabama. We've got one baby and one on the way, and she's not real happy with me, <laughs> you know, away from her family and friends. And it, you know, it was it was different, but we made it through, and and uh, I couldn't have done it without a wonderful and supportive wife. It's funny. Every coach that I've been around, and I've been around a ton of them, always seem to say that. We actually had uh, Ted uh, Rich Rodriguez, who's obviously the, the head yep. football coach at Arizona. He told a story on this show where he said, "Hey, you know, I, I was about to get married, and I call up my wife and I say, hey, I got good news and bad news.'" And she says, "Okay, well, what is it?" He goes, "Well, the bad news is I got fired. The good news is I'll still marry you." And um, you know, it's <laughs> it's kind of one of those, those those crazy things where I, I think people don't understand the amount of support that it takes for a lot of 
of coaches that are in this business that are that are trying to to, to really make it. And, and obviously, it's worked out wonderfully for you. You're in one of the. I think I would make an argument that Boulder might be the best college town in maybe in the country and, and certainly in the Pac-12 conference. But as a 30 year old, that's starting to grind and do this as an assistant coach. What What's life as an assistant coach actually like at a lot of these programs? It's really hard. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned coaches, coaches' wives. Number one, I think there's a special place in heaven for them because they're special people. They have to be to put up with the sacrifices that go with being it. And then the, the second group is assistant coaches. I don't think there's enough assistant coaches that get enough credit, especially with successful programs, um, and how important they are and how hard of a job that is because they're not the ones in the limelight. They're not the ones getting uh, a lot of the credit. Uh, they're not the ones that are making uh, huge paychecks. They're doing it because they love the game. And that's why I got in. You know, I got in because I love the game. I didn't get in because of the money. I got in because I love the game. And so many assistants are this, in the same boat. And those are the guys that grind it out every day, and, and they're moving from Eugene, Oregon, and Knoxville, Tennessee, to Jacksonville, Alabama. And uh, I've always said this as an assistant. It's not where you work. It's who you work for. And I was very, very fortunate to work for you know Jerry Green at Oregon in Tennessee, but then Mark Turgeon at Jacksonville State and Wichita State. Uh, worked for some great guys. It's funny because I was we spoke what in August when I was on campus for the training camp tour, and that was yeah. something that you had preached to me. And and it's I don't know how many coaches necessarily take that approach, the one that that you're describing, but I I couldn't agree more. There's so much work that's involved. It's not just the head coach that a lot of these assistants are doing, and and most guys you know aren't really aware. Casual fans don't really get what's what's happening behind the scenes. But even from a recruiting sort of landscape there out there i'm actually curious from you how, how has recruiting changed for you going from the assistant role to obviously now you've been you know a head coach for a bunch of years but how, how has it changed well the, the first of all the recruiting landscape and the world has changed um so much more now than it did when i was an assistant so and i'm sure recruiting will be different five years from now i don't know how it'll be different but it'll be different and uh but at the end of the day it's about identifying and evaluating uh, your type of players. And then the recruiting starts. And so I think sometimes recruiting gets lumped in with evaluating. And I think that's one of the things at Colorado we've been very successful at. And it's one of the things I've always prided myself on is being able to evaluate. And again, nobody bats a thousand. I've made a lot of mistakes in my evaluations through the years as an assistant coach and as a head coach. So nobody's perfect, but it's not the ones that, you know, uh, that you miss on. It's the ones that you, you get and you get right. Uh, that's when, that's what I love about the recruiting aspect of it. Look, if LeBron James is out there and everybody knows how good LeBron James is, you know, that, now it comes down to recruiting. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to evaluate LeBron James. He's a pretty good player, right? You're going to win yeah. that recruiting battle or lose that yeah. recruiting battle. So to me at Colorado or at Wichita State or at Jacksonville State or at Northern Colorado, those places especially, it's about evaluating the right player and the guy that you think is going to be good enough in two or three years that everybody else is missing on, that diamond in the rough kind of guy. And that's that's where we have to make our mark at Colorado because we're not going to be recruiting 
the one-and-done guys. We're not recruiting against Kentucky or Duke or Kansas. Um, but we got to get good players that can help beat those programs uh, a couple years down the road. So that's the part I really enjoy is the evaluation uh, aspect of it. As an assistant coach, it's critical because you have to get in on those kids early. And so our assistants at, at Colorado, Mike Rohn, Jean Prelo, and now Bill Greer, used to be Rodney Billups till he went to DU, those, those three guys are really good evaluators and they're really good coaches. Has what you look for in a player, has that evolved the more experience you've had as a head coach? Like, has certain have certain aspects or things on your checklist changed because of Not time? really, no. No, uh, the, the criteria we have are pretty much the same. And uh, now it's a little bit more crystallized now. And, again, you learn every year that you go. And, you know, we took some chances a couple years ago here at Colorado that, guess what, when that comes up again, I'm not going to take that chance. I learned from that mistake. Um, so you get your your views and your philosophies get a little bit more crystallized the older you get and the more you do it. But in terms of the criteria that we use, like character is number one. It's non-negotiable. Work ethic is number one. It's non-negotiable. Um, toughness is becoming a non-negotiable thing. Uh, again, that's one that maybe has changed a little bit. You know, I'd take a kid that maybe wasn't as tough, and I said, I can make him tough. Eh, I'm not sure that can happen. Uh, maybe it can, maybe to a certain degree. But toughness uh, moves up the, the, the ladder for us over the last few years because we want tough-minded kids that love the game, that have a high degree of character. Those are the non-negotiables. Then you want to try to get, obviously, the best players you can get. How do you measure toughness, though, on an on a guy that you haven't that you don't see every single day? Yeah, I think you know, you like have when they get do, to campus, you yeah. get it. Due diligence. I mean, you have to you have to see how they react in tough situations. You have to uh, ask. You, you can't ask mom or dad or the high school coach. Uh, you might have to ask the assistant coach, or you might have to ask a coach that plays against them. To me, those are the best. Uh, the best piece of information you can get is uh, a, a coach that's coaching against somebody that you're recruiting. What's that kid like to play against? What kind of guy is he, number one? How tough is he? Oh, coach, all you got to do is uh, get up in him and, you know, a couple shots to the ribs and he's done. He's he's not going to fight back. Well, that's pretty good information. <laughs> or, hey, we don't want to make that guy mad. You know, let a sleeping dog lie. This kid is, uh, he's tough as nails. That's what you want to hear, and that's when you move forward. Yeah, have a favorite moment on the recruiting trail. I mean, even, not even just as a head coach, unless that, that one, that story resonates, but, I mean, obviously years and years as an assistant, and now obviously as a head coach, there's got to be one of those gems. Oh, there's 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 a lot. Uh, I'll take I as many as you want to give. <laughs> I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to use names. Um, I, I will use the, the head coach's name because he's a good friend and he's got a sense of humor. But Mark Turgeon's the head coach at Wichita State, and I'm his assistant. And we're recruiting a kid in Missouri. He's a farm kid. He's got a uh, younger brother who's a who's a who's a nice kid and uh, nice family. And we get to the home visit, and it's just the recruit and his little brother and the dad. And we we just get there. We pull up to this farmhouse, and the dogs are barking, and you know we get out and. We're kind of making small talk, and uh, Coach Turgeon uh, 
mother who's got a severe underbite. Oh, I didn't know you chewed tobacco, but I guess you're on the farm. Everybody chews tobacco on the farm. And the recruit <laughs> thought it was so funny, and the dad thought it was so funny. And But, of course, the little brother got embarrassed, and, you know, he wasn't chewing tobacco. He just had a bad underbite or a, a large underbite. And uh, so they, they kind of are laughing, and, and Coach uh, obviously realizes, oh, man, I should, probably shouldn't have said that. And and, and as, an, as an assistant, you know, I move in and I just change the subject automatically. Like, hey, what's you know, what's uh, what's your dog's name? What, <laughs> how long, how old is he? And, and and just try to divert the attention away. But I mean, there's certain things that happen that you just will never forget, and that's uh, that's one of my favorites. Two things come obviously, to mind when you obviously talk. It, it, it's, it's not a story on myself. It's it's uh, <laughs> on somebody else, so it makes it even better, right? Well, well done. And I'm I'm not shocked knowing that story now that you did go that route. What um did you get the did you get the kid? Did he sign? We got the kid. That's why I can tell the story. We got the kid, and he turned out to be an unbelievable player, and and we still laugh at that. If we didn't get the kid, I probably wouldn't be telling the story. Did the younger brother attend any games during? Absolutely, during... became a good friend, and he laughed about it. It was uh, it was a great, great, great moment. But uh, at the time, very uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, and and by the way, well, well done by you. I don't know how you can pivot immediately away from from the circuit because I would have been laughing hysterically uh, the entire well, time. Well, I was in the car when we left and and went uh, <laughs> went to the restaurant or back to the hotel or wherever we went. I, I was uh, and and that, because again, Coach Turs is a good friend and he's a guy that can laugh at himself and and uh, so it was uh, and when we did get the kid, it was fun, which is just tremendous. And, and by the way, and I know you know uh, Kevin O'Neill, who's one of our analysts at the Pac-12 Network. Something tells Absolutely. me if I asked. If if KO was in that situation and he told the story, the graphic nature might have been a lot different. So I appreciate you yeah. keeping this a family show as you as you divulge that story. So Absolutely. I'm gonna get K- Absolutely. Look, I'll get KO on the uh, on the podcast uh, in over the course of the next few weeks, and I think our listeners now, who haven't maybe maybe watch him on Pac-12 Network will truly understand the special person that uh, that KO is and the colorful language that he tends to use. Um, he is Coach, before he's, he's going he's gonna to have hundreds of uh, recruiting stories. Uh, I've heard a few, and believe me, some of them are not allowed to be told. Uh, they are Absolutely. in the vault for forever. Uh, Coach, before we let you get going, and I can't thank you enough, and I know you know it's obviously we're, we're at the start of the season and things are getting crazy for your schedule, so I do appreciate you stopping by with us. But the last thing I'll ask you is college basketball. You said something to me earlier on the podcast where you said, hey, you know, it's going to change. It's different than it was five years ago, and it's going to be different five years from now. So if I said to you, you were the, the B-end end-all, and the the dude of college basketball, and you could do whatever you wanted, and and it, you'd, you'd have it your way. What, what's what's the thing that you would change about the about the sport? I don't know if it's off the court or on the court. What's the one thing you would do differently? Oh boy, that's a great question, and I'm not sure. I'm uh, I'd, I'd like some time to think about that. But that's what that's what these things are about, right? You gotta you gotta think on your feet. But I I would say this. Um, I, I don't like the 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 nature of the transfers and how uh, the the free agency if you will the graduate transfer rule automatically would go away um and if it was it didn't go away it would be it would be changed to make it a little bit more difficult for the receiving institution to uh get a graduate transfer that that would be the first thing i would do i would i would try to address the transfer situation um, as, as best that I could, uh, 
try to slow it down because I do think it's a it's not good for the game, uh, and and I'm not sure it's good for players. Uh, now some people might argue that, but uh, uh, so so those two things I would do. You know, the one and done. Everybody talks about that. Uh, look, that has nothing to do with college basketball. It's a it's it's a reality that we deal with based on the NBA's rules. So I would try to work closer with the NBA and try to get on the same page in terms of making that maybe a two or two years or a three years or a baseball model and done. But those are the three areas I would I would address: is the graduate transfers, the overall transfer situation, and. Uh, and the one and done. And, and I'm not sure, again, there's not an easy solution to any of them, but those are the three areas I would address uh, uh, immediately. Is there something specific about the, the grad transfer rule that you don't like? Yeah. I, I, what I don't like is it's it's the intention of the rule, like most rules that are put in and it's due, the intention of the rule is great. The intention of the rule was you graduate from your institution you're at, and you can go to another institution because they have a graduate program uh, that you want that your original institution did not have. That makes a lot of sense. The reality is players aren't using it for that. They're not going to from institution A to institution B because institution B really has a program they want. They're going to institution B because they want to play there, and it's a higher level or it's a a better situation, or whatever the case may be, they've got some friends there. Uh, you name it, but they're they're going, and they're not getting their graduate degree. the The numbers are thirty percent. Thirty percent of the transfers, graduate transfers, are not getting their graduate degrees. They're just getting a chance to play at another institution, and to me, that hurts institution A. It's not good for institution A. It's not good for the game. Now, if they truly do have a program, then guess what? L- most graduate programs are two years in length. Let's give them a two-year scholarship. Let's have the institution be on the, ho- be on the hook, APR points for two years, graduation points for two years, and uh, that might slow it down. Yeah, no, it's actually a good strategy. And by the way, I mean, it makes a lot of sense because of what your program has been able to do over the course. I know you're big on on guys red shirting i mean i was just getting ready obviously for the start of the season if i'm not mistaken and you would know this better than me but i i we got four five years fifth year seniors yeah. on your roster four fifth year seniors season. on our roster and two of them are transfers so look we benefit yeah. by the transfer yeah. rule but we also we don't benefit by the graduate transfer rule at colorado because again the the playing field is not even when it comes to graduate programs, much like it's not when you come to undergraduate programs. So uh, there's advantages and disadvantages depending on what school you're at. Uh, and and I just think, uh, uh, I, I just hate to see, inst- and again, I'm looking at it from the standpoint, if I'm at Northern Colorado or I'm at Wichita State or I'm at Jacksonville State, and we have a player there that is successful and does very well, well, guess what? They're going to leave that program and go to a bigger, higher-profile program as soon as they can. And uh, But we're the ones, or that, that program is the ones that recruited them, groomed them. They're not getting the benefit. 
Yeah, yeah, that development and the investment in that player. No, I totally get it. But Uh, but a lot of people look at the player's perspective. They should be able to go where they want to go, and and I understand that argument as well. That's why I say there's not an easy solution, but I think it needs to be really well thought out and come up with with something that uh, can let players have what they want based on what they need. And uh, but also protect the institutions involved. Yeah, hiding behind. I I didn't realize the number percentage was that high, hovering around thirty percent of of guys that don't finish. I mean, it's it's a loophole. Is really what it is. It's a loophole. I mean, you're using that. Yeah. I mean, you got to figure out a way to close it up. Not to say the guy shouldn't be moved, but um, you got to be moving maybe for for different reasons, or, or at least and, be more transparent yeah. about it. And I'm not an anti-transfer. I know you know there's there's good legitimate reasons for kids to transfer and I I certainly recognize that and understand that and again I just think we need to but I think it gets a little bit again it's symptomatic of our society you know and you see high school kids do it you see AU kids do it as part of the culture that we have created I'm not sure I like it yeah yeah Coach, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you this upcoming season. Obviously, expectations uh, always pretty significant now that you are uh, uh, at CU and some of those tournament runs uh, and, and making the NCAA tournament. So wish you nothing but the best this upcoming year. Hey, thanks, Mike. Always good to be with you. Well, thanks again to Tad Boyle for for popping on the show and, and can't thank you guys enough for continuing to listen. We've had a good run the last uh, couple weeks, last couple months of the show. Continue to rate, subscribe, and review the show on iTunes or whatever platform you're using, whether it's Blog Talk Radio or Stitcher uh, or even tune in. Really the biggest thing, tell your friends, help spread the word on social media. I, I know... It's something I continue to to hammer home, and maybe you guys are tired of me saying it, but uh, you know, it really is a solo deal on my end from booking the guest to editing the show to promoting it and hosting it and researching it and all that stuff, and, and it's been a blast for me to do. Really, the hardest part is, to be totally transparent with you guys, is, is a lot of the promotional stuff for it. So uh, it is a solo deal on my end. Uh, the more help I'm getting from the listeners, the uh, the more appreciative I am on, on that front. So once again, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and uh, continue to rate and uh, rate and review the show as well and, and spread it if you see it on Twitter. If you got some feedback and I know it's been coming in the last few weeks, you can uh, find me on Twitter at Mike underscore Yam. Uh, not to mention Facebook. The Facebook page is Mike Yam. Thanks again so much for listening to the show.